You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Elizabeth Barnes. Elizabeth is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Virginia. Her research interests are in metaphysics, social philosophy, feminist philosophy, and ethics. She is particularly interested in the places where these topics overlap. She is the editor of Philosophy Compass and the author of the recently released book, The Minority Body, A Theory of Disability. In this episode, we talk about disability and well-being, becoming disabled, disability pride, why the increased interest in disability studies, and so much more. Hello, Elizabeth, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, really excited to do this. Thank you so much for coming on. So tell me, Elizabeth, how did you get interested in philosophy? Gosh, well, you know, I think like a lot of people who end up doing philosophy, you know, the kind of questions that we ask in philosophy are the kind of questions that just because I was a weird little kid, I'd probably thought about, you know, my whole life. I, I can remember being a little kid and looking at a stoplight. And, uh, you know, seeing the really bright color red and being really puzzled about, like, how did I know that what I perceive as red is the same thing as what my mom perceives as red when she's looking at the stoplight and like being worried about this (laughs) on like a deep level. And I must have been, I don't know, eight years old. Um, So I think, you know, I, I, I think for a lot of people who who end up in the discipline when you wind up in your first philosophy class you're like oh my god other people are worried about this stuff too <laughs> like other other people are freaks like me this is great but i think actually when i really got interested in philosophy as such it was actually through literature i was a let's say a bookish young person um <laughs> And uh, I I went through this phase where I was like really obsessed with like literature in the existentialist tradition. So I was uh, you know I was really into Dostoevsky and Camus and uh, you know th- these these kind of uh, these kind of writers, especially with Dostoevsky. And I was I was very interested in a lot of like the, the great Russian writers. I just got got really into it. And I through trying to find out more about that, realized started to realize how much their writing was influenced by philosophical traditions. So I actually first started reading about philosophy just because I wanted to understand more about the novels that I was really into. And like, you know, I wanted a deeper sense of these ideas that were being alluded to. And I didn't really know what they were. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. So that was the first time that I pursued kind of philosophy as such. And then I discovered that I was kind of more into the philosophical aspect than I was actually into the literary aspect. And I think probably the reason that I loved authors like Dostoevsky so much was that they were very philosophical. Then there was no turning back. Then, <laughs> <laughs> then, I, then I was just addicted. Do you, recall, uh, do you recall the first philosopher proper that you got hooked onto? Do you know, I think the first philosopher that ever really just blew my mind was David Hume. Good answer. Um, <laughs> The problem of induction was the first time when I was like, you know, a first year philosophy student and I was sitting in philosophy class and I got presented with the problem of induction. I was just like, whoa, what? (laughs) 
so, so for, just, for listeners who have no idea what that is, tell right. us briefly what that is. Right. So Hume has this argument where he's basically just like, what justification do we have for thinking that the future is going to resemble the past? And when we try to justify to ourselves that the future is going to resemble the past, pretty much all we do is point to the, pack, the fact that in the past, the future has resembled the past. So Hume kind of says that our, our justification for trying to believe in induction is circular. So our, our uh, inductive reasoning is, you know, reasoning based on past experiences. And Hume says we try to use induction to justify induction. We, have, we try to use reasoning based on past experiences to justify our use of reasoning based on past experiences. And Hume says, well, that's not rational. But then the conclusion that he comes to is this kind of chill conclusion where he's like, yeah, of course, you got to do it. Everybody does it, right? But just... Don't think you're rational when you're doing it. Right. You need to accept that we're not nearly as rational as we think we are. And I found something really kind of provocative about that idea and really fascinating about that idea. Like, you know, I was this I really wanted to think of myself as a as a fundamentally rational person at that age. And then Hume just comes along as like, nah, not really. And I think the thing that was so profound to me about that learning experience was it was a uh, you know, I think often what philosophy education is so good at is destroying knowledge. You know, it, it took this thing that to me was utterly common sense, and it had never occurred to me to doubt it. And then it was like, wait, no, why do you believe this? Why do you think that this is common sense? Why, why do you think that you're rational when you're doing this? And I didn't have any good answers. And that was like a really challenging experience for me as a student. That kind of experience was something that I got hooked on. I want to be like, I was like, okay, well, what else don't I know? <laughs> like, what, what else am I assuming that's just some nonsense, right? That I, that I don't have good reasons for. Yeah, so that, that was the first experience like in a classroom setting where I was just like, wow, okay, there's something going on here. I got I to gotta do more of this. So the name of your book is The Minority Body, A Theory of Disability. So yeah. for those who are not familiar with disability studies at all, the question is, what are those other theories of disabilities that are out there? <laughs> so if you could just provide for us just a, just a couple, kind of a, a lit review of sorts, what are the other kind of theories of disabilities? And then what is your account? How does your account differ from those theories? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my book focuses on physical dis disability to start with. And um, I want to be just like super clear that it, I don't mean to, by focusing on disabil uh, physical disability, say that like other forms of disability aren't important to talk about. What I just wanted to be really careful of is avoiding a certain type of imperialism that I think sometimes happens in conversations about disability, where we talk about physical disability and then we just assume that other forms of disability are kind of the same. So we're like, oh, right, so this will go for physical disability and then we can just extend that to psychosocial disability or cognitive disability or, or that kind of thing. The arguments that I really wanted to explore did apply directly to the case of, of physical disability. So I wanted to start small uh, and see if we could build up. We could build up a conversation. And, you know, disability is a many splendored thing. I think conversations about disability have got to be a big tent. So, so that's where that's what I'm focused on. That's what I'm looking at. So, in terms of other theories of physical disability, I think there's kind of in conversations about this. There's pretty much two main camps. And the first one is probably what you might say is the common sense view of disability. I think it's how most people think about physical disability, which is basically just more or less a medical view of it, where it's like you know you've got a normally functioning body and then you've got bodies that are like a little bit busted right broken in 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 some way have some sort of defect that we can understand in medical terms 
And if a defect is sort of significant enough, it'll count as a disability. So you probably don't count as having a disability if you're a little bit nearsighted, but you count as... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I am too. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it doesn't have that profound effect on an effect on my life. It's like if, if you have a, a serious enough one of these defects, you know, if you if you lack a sensory modality or if you need uh, some some sort of equipment to get around or if, you know, you're in a, a large amount of chronic pain or something like that, then 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 you're going to count as, as having a disability. And can understand these in just sort of like purely physical or, or medical terms. I think within academic conversations about disability and also just within social movements surrounding disability and like the disability rights movement and things like that, there's been a thought that this kind of view is too reductive it, because it just talks about what's going on with a person's body. And it doesn't understand that disability is this sort of complicated relationship between a person's body and their social environment. So there are views of disability that broadly get this label called the the social model of disability, which basically says that, you know, there are there are ways that your body can be, and let's call those impairments. But disability is the disadvantage that's created by having an impairment in a world that's not designed for people who have bodies like that. So disability is created by prejudice against disabled people. Disability is created by lack of access. Disability is created by lack of accessibility and accommodation and that kind of thing. So disability is the disadvantage that's created by certain types of inequality. And the idea behind the social model is that the the impairment isn't the thing that we should focus on. The impairments sort of by themselves, that's not what disability is. Impairments by themselves just wouldn't be a very big deal in the absence of this sort of structural prejudice. And what we need to focus on is the structural prejudice. That's, that's what disability is. So it's, it's society that, that, that disables people. Is, is what people often say when we're talking about the social model. So I think that there's a lot that's good about the social model. I think they're absolutely right that we need to think about disability as a relationship between a person's body and their environment, and that we need to think about the social dimensions of disability and how much a lot of the bad effects of disability aren't just a matter of what a person's body is like. But I think the social model goes a little bit too far. Uh, So what I was trying to do is sort of develop a view that would in a way be a social view of disability, a social constructionist view of disability that sort of steers a middle ground between the medical model and the social model. Because there's a way in which disability on the social model becomes a little bit disembodied, right? It's just like this thing that society does to you. Disability is the structural disadvantage. And I think disability is, though I reject the purely medical view, disability is in many ways, it is a matter of what your body is like. And I also think that for a lot of people and for a lot of types of disabilities, especially disabilities that require, you know, ongoing complex medical care or disabilities that are painful or disabilities that are progressive or things like that, it's not really that plausible that in the absence of these kind of structural prejudices, these impairments would be nothing more than a nuisance or wouldn't really have a profound effect on you. I think, you know, there are ways that your body can be that we label disabilities that are going to have a profound effect on you, even in a much more accommodating society. So 
I wanted a theory of disability that was recognized the social dimensions of disability, said absolutely disability is a relationship between what your body is like and what the world is like, but also acknowledges that, you know, disability is complicated and it is a matter of what your body is like and it's not just a matter of of how people treat you. So, you know, disability is in a way uh, a fact about what your body is like the physical state of your body, but the reason that we label certain physical states of your body disabilities has more to do with how we think about people and how we think about what's normal and how we think about what's acceptable and then how we think about what's broken or defective than it does anything like biological commonality that you might have between, you know, all the disabled people forming a natural kind or something like that. So someone may pick up the book and they may read the title and then read uh-huh. the subtitle and uh-huh. come up with a disconnect of sorts, right? <laughs> so, 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 why call the book the mon- minority body? Um, partly because it's kind of a pun, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love bad puns. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I guess partly because so, partly I was influenced by there's this amazing book by the feminist philosopher Susan Wendell called The Rejected Body, which is her book on disability. So, I wanted a spin on that that was a little bit sort of a little bit less value-laden. And one of the ways that I was trying to sort of think about and conceptualize the way that that I want to think about disability was in terms of disabled bodies. Yeah, they're different. They're statistically atypical. If you have a disability, you have a body that sort of marks you out as different in some way. And odds are that means that you're going to navigate the world differently than most people do. You're going to experience some things differently than most people do. But that doesn't mean automatically that you're worse off. That doesn't mean automatically that you're at a deficit. We can't understand that simply in terms of loss or lack or something like that. I think that's an impoverished view of disability. So I wanted to sort of focus on this idea of physical difference in a way that's not as value-laden as we tend to think about disability in everyday terms. So I thought about, you know, there's all sorts of ways that you can be statistically atypical. You can be statistically atypical when it comes to sexuality. You can be statistically atypical when it comes to gender. You can be statistically atypical when it comes to ethnicity. You know, there's all these ways that you can just, you know, be a little bit set apart from what's considered normal. And I think one of the things that the experience of disability shows us is that you can be statistically atypical and be something other than what people consider normal when it comes to your physical body. And so I wanted to explore that idea. And can we capture that idea without laying on the extra baggage that we tend to have when we think about disability? It's like what it is to be disabled is to have a body that's not just different, it's to have a body that's broken. It's to have a body that's defective in some way. Usually when people think about about that which is normal, uh-huh. they associate something that's good with normality and something yeah. that's not normal, they associate that with badness. So so what do you see as the connection between disability and well-being? So that is really complicated. Um, really, really complicated because one of the things... One of the things that I want to be really careful not to downplay or not to undermine is the way in which, you know, having a disability in the world as it is now, especially our current political situation, our current socioeconomic situation, having a disability can be awful. Having a disability can be something that can absolutely ruin your life. I think one of the things, though, that people often 
move from is this idea that disability is in fact something that can be bad for you to this idea that there's this necessary connection between disability and reduction of well-being. So, you know, we look around us in America and we see in this culture where it's really hard for disabled people to get adequate accessibility and to get adequate health care and where disabled people are constantly worried that they're going to lose their insurance and they're going to go bankrupt and, you know, they're not going to have the money to pay for their assistive devices or their health needs or, you know, all all, all the ways in which disability incurs these these extra financial burdens. And then there's, you know, there's all this shame put on disabled people that, uh, you know, you have a body that's wrong in some way, or you're defective, or you're this, all these sort of complicated uh, cultural stereotypes that are that are put on disabled people. So, you know, no wonder, right, that people who have those kind of experiences might have a hard time. But we move from that to, right, okay, so what we need to make the world better is to get rid of disabilities. And it's pretty far from obvious, I think, that what's causing the reduction in well-being is the physical condition of people's bodies rather than the social environment in which we live. The other thing about well-being is that given the sort of empirical evidence that we have about self-reported happiness or self-reported quality of life, we have a lot of what I think to non-disabled people turns out to be pretty surprising empirical information, right? So disabled people by and large don't self-report lower quality of life than non-disabled people. Okay. Disabled people by and large tend to report good quality of life. Now, that doesn't, of course, mean that they wouldn't, it wouldn't be better if they had better access to accommodation and better access to healthcare and all this kind of thing. But they do tend to report pretty good quality of life. And then the other thing that we at least have pretty good empirical evidence for at this point, you know, you, you don't know how much you can rely on these kind of studies, but well-being for disabled people doesn't seem to track what non-disabled people think it's going to track. So it often doesn't track the sort of what you might think of as the objective severity of a physical disability. Instead, it tracks social support and it tracks things like positive disability identity or, you know, sense of acceptance of disability and these kind of things. So the relationship between disability and well-being just on the ground currently in our actual world doesn't look like what a lot of non-disabled people expect it to look like. And a lot of non-disabled, some other interesting research that, there, uh, that we have suggests that non-disabled people expect disabled people to say that they're very unhappy and to say that they would, you know, give up years of their life to get rid of their disability and things like this. And they're just reliably really bad at predicting these claims about well-being in disabled people. So I think given that we have some, you know, reasonably solid empirical evidence that we're non-disabled people are not very good at predicting well-being in disabled people. And we're in a situation where, you know, there's all these things that are not necessarily connected to disability that could make disabled people's lives worse. And we're pretty familiar with the idea that people's lives can be worse for things that are only contingently connected to some social fact about themselves. Like, you know, you look at the suicide rate for gay teenagers. We hopefully don't look at the suicide rate for gay teenagers and say, oh gosh, it's terrible to be gay. Right. So we need to find a way to fix the gay people. I mean, I'm sure there, there's some people in the world who say that, but they shouldn't. And so if we look at all these facts, I think it's been really striking 
that people are so confident that there is this close connection between disability and reduction of well-being that you know even if the world was much more accepting of disabled people even if the world was a much more accessible place disability would still be very likely to reduce people's quality of life. I mean, that's a really distant possible world that we're thinking about. And I don't know about you, like, I find it really hard to have strong intuitions about pretty distant possible worlds. Um, People are really confident about this. And they think it's common sense. And I think that that's really striking, because it seems like a thing that that probably shouldn't be common sense. So let let me let me push a little bit. Well, not necessarily a push, but I I wonder what the empirical data has to say about this. So as I was reading the book, particularly on this point, so several examples popped in popped in my head. So I began to think about Mm -hmm. my, my mother, who is now deceased, but lived her whole life in a wheelchair, right? She had a birth defect. And I've discussed this before when I did an interview with Joy Reynolds about this, but she was perfectly fine with who she was and no way in the world did she want any type of cure. She didn't want any legs, not even a new electronic wheelchair, right? She was okay with what she had. And then you take my sister who just reached 40, but has lupus and is having a tremendous effect on her body and she's constantly in pain. And then you take, let's say, a, f- a fictitious example, Lieutenant Dan from, uh, I forgot the movie. Forrest <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Forrest Gump, yeah. right? Who was very upset, right, when he yeah. became disabled, right? So you take those three different individuals who, who all have different perspectives about what their yep. well-being is. And so I just wonder, what does the empirical data say about those kinds of cases? And, and do they do they map on, do they change or are they different depending on those kinds of cases? So one thing we definitely know, or I mean, insofar as we know anything from social science research, one thing we have solid evidence for is that it is a hell of a thing to become disabled, right? Being disabled, not so bad. Right. Um, becoming disabled, wow. Right? That's, that is rough. And typically what we see for people who become disabled is they're sort of, you know, going along at a steady state of happiness, they become disabled, their happiness kind of falls off a cliff, then their happiness adapts. And it doesn't, one thing to emphasize, though, is this is just what happens in general. And human beings are complicated. Yeah. And it doesn't happen for everyone. So some disabled people, their happiness doesn't really go off a cliff ever if they if they become disabled. Other people, their happiness doesn't adapt. And one thing that, that I think it's really important, sometimes when you, you read this literature on happiness adaptation and hedonic psychology and that kind of thing, it then gets spun into this sort of positive psychology. Oh, we just need to focus on resilience or, you know, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, one thing I want to be really clear about is that there should be absolutely no blame or stigma attached to the person who just really hates being disabled. And that is just not their thing. That is not their life. That is not the life that they wanted. And it is not the life they chose. And for some people, it's a tragedy. And it doesn't get better. And I think, for one thing, we have to recognize that it it's really hard to be disabled in the current world. It's just really, really hard. And there's so much, especially, I think, perhaps for women um, and women of a certain age, there's so much shame that gets put on you about your body not meeting certain standards. There's, I think for men, it can be extraordinarily emasculating if you have to rely on help. If, if people have to help you, that's a, that's a threat to your masculinity. And there's so much stigma about being a person who needs things, you know, who's dependent. We have this ideal of, you know, the, the person who is independent and we valorize independence as, you know, which is kind of a fiction. We're all dependent on each right. other, but... 
this idea that disability is, as Eva Kate has wonderful work on this, this idea of disability is dependence and dependence is this thing that, that we pathologize. And so it's, it's really, really hard. And for some people, you had a thing that you were doing and then you acquired disability and disability just got in the way of that thing. And that is sad and that is tragic. And I think we need to focus on the ways in which it's really hard, regardless of the fact that lots of disabled people are happy. It's really hard to be disabled in the actual world. And also probably even if we lived in a perfect world, there would be some people who just did not want to be disabled. And that's okay. You mentioned this notion of, of becoming disabled. And, and I, I because you've been public with this, I, I want to bring up your life as an example, right? Sure. So I'll let you tell the story, but it's, it seems as if you didn't get, a, an, I guess, a precise diagnosis about what was happening to your body, what, what this thing was, right, until later on in life. And so yeah. I, I wonder, did you become disabled at the time in which there was a name for it, or would you consider that you were always disabled? So I just wonder yeah. about that phenomenon. So I have, a, I have a genetic disability that I was born with, but it didn't really, I just had like, I had weird stuff happen to me in childhood, but it was nothing that you really would have noticed. And it wasn't really until I went through adolescence that I began to develop significant health conditions. And it would have been when I was about 14 or 15 that I began to have really significant health issues. And I had to have like my first surgery when I was 17 and that, no wait, first surgery when I was 15, second surgery when I was 17 and things like that. But I, I still didn't have, I think I was diagnosed with like five or six different things during the course of that time. And it wasn't till I was 22 and finally got sent to a geneticist that I finally figured out what was going on. So I think I definitely it had the experience of a person who was disabled from the age of about 14 or 15. But I also had the experience, my experience was very medicalized in part just because, you know, I kept getting diagnosed with different things. You know, I had fibromyalgia, I had rheumatoid arthritis, I had lupus, I had like, you know, I had everything that you can, these sort of vague nonspecific things that they give people. And, uh, and I, so I, I bounced around between different doctors and different diagnoses. And it, it wasn't until I was, yeah, 22 that I understood what my disability was but I had had the experience of a person who was disabled from the age of about 15. And and you describe, uh, you know, with Facebook, for instance, I reach a post, yeah. but yeah. You, you describe when people make certain assumptions about you, because I, I think what we have a tendency to do is that if a person doesn't from the outside look disabled, whatever that looks like, right? We had these assumptions, but you, you would describe yourself as having an invisible disability. Is that correct? And tell us more about that. Right. So up until three and a half years ago, maybe three and a half, three and a half, four years ago. Yeah. I would have been completely invisibly disabled. Now I suppose I'm quite visibly disabled because I walk with a mobility aid, but I'm only invisibly disabled if I'm like standing up, you know? So if I'm, which, which is very interesting. If I'm, if I'm sitting down and my, my cane is folded and it's under my chair, nobody notices. And then I stand up and people are like, whoa, what? But that was a really, really striking transition for me just socially the the difference between being invisibly like mostly invisibly disabled and now mostly visibly disabled partly because it didn't represent a particularly large shift in my health condition okay but it represented a radical shift 
in my social experience, which was interesting along many dimensions. But yeah, I think in a lot of ways, I, as an invisibly disabled person, didn't meet people's expectations of what a disabled person looks like, because I think a lot of people think of a person as disabled. You can tell. You can tell by looking. And you'll instantly be able to tell. And now people are quite confused because I think they think, like, I don't look like someone who, who they associate with needing a mobility aid. Because, you know, they associate mobility aids with age and frailty. And, you know, I'm 33 and, you know, I'm very fit. I do a lot of exercise and all that. But I I have to have this mobility aid to get around. And so people are just continually baffled. And I think it's very interesting for me just sort of sociologically to see how many how many stereotypes we have and how much baggage that we have and, and, and that kind of thing about the perceptions of these kind of things. You said earlier that we shouldn't judge those who, quote unquote, don't value their disability in some kind of way. But what what does it mean to value disability? Yeah. So I think, you know, this is the kind of thing that can mean different things for different people. I think um, a lot of what gets talked about in disability communities when we, we talk about valuing disability is partly this idea that disability is a part of human diversity. This is, you know, a part of the human spectrum. And it is a part of the human condition. And not necessarily a part of the human condition to be feared or to be freaked out about in general. I think one of the things that's interesting about disability, unlike other social kinds, you can think about, if you're a straight person, you can think about being gay and think about the dimensions, but you don't have to worry that, like, one day you're going to wake up and become gay. That's not something that that actively has to be on your radar. You don't have to worry about, oh, but, you know, like, how, how would I feel if I caught gayness? Um, that, <laughs> it that's, doesn't happen like that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not how it works. Yeah. And, but people do have to worry about that for disability. And this is something that people actively worry about. And, you know, most people, if they live long enough, will be disabled before they die. And I think this is something that people worry about and they're afraid of for themselves. It represents a certain type of fragility, a certain type of frailty. It's associated, I think, with mortality. It represents something that they worry about for their children, or they worry about with their ability to do things that, that they want to do. And so I think when, partly when we talk about valuing disability, it's just accepting that this isn't necessarily the bogeyman that it's made out to be. Yeah in our lives, right? This is a part of human diversity. And people live rich, wonderful lives with these physical conditions that a lot of people are very afraid of. And then I think on top of that, it's a rejection of a certain type of narrative, a certain type of narrative about disabled people's lives that says that the way that disabled people can be happy or have good lives is this sort of idea of the tragic overcomer, that you can have a good life as a disabled person by having overcome your struggles with your body by being very inspirational, by being all this sort of tiny Tim stuff. And I think when we talk about valuing disability, it's, it's a rejection of that idea. It's saying, no, you know, you can just live a good life as a disabled person in a different kind of body. And it's not, you haven't overcome something dramatic. You're not inspirational. You're just a person living a good life in a different kind of body. And are there bad things about being disabled? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that when we talk about disability, valuing disability, we want to emphasize though is that there's also good things. There can be good and wonderful and unexpected little joys. And that's the part of the story that we don't tell. And that's the part of the story that 
that I think a lot of non-disabled people don't know. So they think that disability is just lack or just loss. So it's like you take all the abilities of a normal functioning person and then you just subtract and that's what disability is. And then it's hard to imagine what it would be to value that. It's like value being less than. That kind of thing doesn't make sense. But I think, so I think the narrative that a lot of people are pushing when they want to talk about valuing disability and certainly the narrative that I want to push is this idea that it's not just lack. It's not just loss. Is there loss? Yeah, there's loss. There's also gain. There's gain in other places such that you can have this rich life that is different, but is not less. What would you say to the able-bodied person who is skeptical <laughs> about, about such a response? What do you think would lead them to be skeptical about you suggesting that there is more than lack, that there is something to value in disability? So I think it is very common for non-disabled people to overestimate the extent to which they have a pretty good idea of what it's like to be disabled. And I think this probably goes together with this idea that, that disability just is lack. I think it also goes together with a sort of medicalized view of disability where you can just add up symptoms and that's what it is to be disabled. So I think people have a tendency, the wonderful philosopher of disability, Joseph Stramondo, has this idea where people lack a certain a certain type of, of moral psychology. They lack a disability moral psychology. And they overestimate what they can know about disabled people's lives. So they think, well, you know, I really like seeing. I really value a lot of my visual experiences. And blind people can't see. So I just imagine sort of my experiences and I take away the sighted versions of that. And then I'm just, it's less, it's less good. Or I really like walking. I think of all the stuff I love to do that's walking oriented, a person in a wheelchair can't walk. So just take away those experiences. And that's, that's what it would be like to be in a wheelchair. So I think people overestimate their ability to reason like that. They then think, okay, okay, so this, this would obviously be bad. And then I think, you know, so many of our narratives surrounding disability and how we understand disabilities is in terms of defect, is in terms of tragedy. Disabled people are, are people who got really unlucky with their bodies, right? <laughs> people who sort of played the natural lottery and lost. So I think we just have this tendency to, to have this sort of deeply valuational understanding of disability. And so I think it's just very, very easy easy, especially for people who maybe haven't known a lot of disabled people, to think that they can tell more by a priori reasoning than they really can. Right. And to think that more things are common sense than obviously should be common sense. On reflection, it's actually hard to see why this stuff should be common sense, but it seems like common sense. And I mean, I've seen this even in my own life as someone, the, the experience of my disability is, has been progressive. You know, ev every time I think, well, God, that's going to be awful. That next step is going to be like, I, I probably know what that's going to be like, and it's going to be awful. And then I get there and I have no idea what it was going to be like. And it's fine. You know? Um, and it is really, you would think that it, well, induction has kind of made me better at this, but it's really striking, you know, even as someone who thinks about disability and has had, had, had previous experience of disability, my tendency was still to do that. Still be like, oh, right. Well, I can imagine what that next step is going to be like, and that, that's going to be the bad one. That's going to be the one where it's really all going to go to hell. I, I think this is just a thing that, that we tend to do. Maybe we are empathy overreaches or something like that. Let's transition from the valuing question 
to the pride question that's to address later on. What is disability pride? For me, I think it's important to talk about disability pride, mostly just as an epistemological resource to help people think about what it might be for disability to be something that's by itself doesn't make you better or worse off. By itself, it's just neutral. It doesn't make you better. It doesn't make you worse. It just makes you a, you're just a person. It's just one of these things where you can't infer anything about a person's overall well-being by understanding that they're disabled. So that's the kind of model about the value of disability that I like. But I also think it makes sense in the current cultural context to celebrate disability, to say disability by itself is something that is totally neutral, yet disability is something that we personally value. I think you see people say very similar things about things like sexuality, right? So if you know that someone is gay, that by itself, it doesn't make them worse. It doesn't make them better. It's just kind of neutral. And I think something similar about disability. But I think that gay pride is extraordinarily important because sometimes it's not enough to just say, okay, here's this thing and it's not bad. It's fine. Because in a context where something is so stigmatized and we have such deeply normative understandings of certainly historically what what it was like to be gay and currently what it's like to be disabled, you got to do a little bit more. And so I think what disability pride means is not this sort of what I call the like the magneto view of disability pride, where it's like, actually, we're the we're the better humans. Right. Disability somehow makes us better. It's not like white pride. Yeah, exactly. It's not it's not that kind of pride. I think it makes sense to take pride in things that you don't actually think make you in any way better off. They're just important to you. You can take pride in you know some weird fact about yourself you can like take pride in how fast you can run a marathon just because you've worked hard at it or you can take pride in your enormous comic book collection or you know you can take pride in how good you are at some video game or you know it's just like all these things that it totally makes sense to just this is something about yourself that you celebrate and it doesn't make you better than other people but it's something that it is permissible to celebrate And I think the idea of disability pride is people getting together and saying, you know, you have now disability pride parades and things like that. And I think the idea is just, all right, this thing that people say makes you less than, makes you broken, makes you deeply, fundamentally unlucky in some way is something that you can celebrate, something that you can embrace. And you don't have to like, the option for your happiness is not just, I will overcome this. I will move past this. I will find a way to to struggle through. You can be happy as a flourishing, delighted, disabled person who wouldn't want to be any other way. So you can embrace this thing about yourself that everyone else is telling you is something that's wrong with you. And I think that is the, the core idea of disability pride. And again, it goes back to this idea of disability being a part of human diversity. We were talking about this before I pressed record. And uh, I was telling you that a friend of mine who is doing a PhD in religion religion have found interest in other kind of areas such as queer studies and disability studies. And one of the things I, I was asking you, and which I pose to you now in front of the audience is for someone who may pick up the book and say, hey, you know what? I'm not directly interested in disability studies, right? I, but people are still finding value in, 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 this, in this discipline. What do you think it is about disability studies and why now? I mean, that's a fantastic question. That's a fantastic question. And I think... 
so for the first question, like what, what might be of interest for people who aren't sort of intrinsically interested in, in disability studies? I think, I mean, my hope for the book, and I, I don't know if it's successful in this regard, but this is certainly how I, I think about it, is that sometimes thinking about like what it is to be disabled and what it means to think that disability is neutral, what it might mean for it to be permissible to value disability and these kind of things. I think part of it is just to, to use a perhaps pat phrase, but I, I can't think of anything else. I think it's partly just a reflection on the human condition Hmm. and what it is to be a human being. We all have bodies. We all have bodies that sometimes don't do what we want them to do. We all have limitations. We are all fundamentally limited, especially by our bodies in some ways. And we're all going to age. Our bodies are going to change. And, you know, we're all going to die. So I think, and I think this plays into why, maybe part of why we pathologize disabled bodies so much is because they, they represent something about the human condition that I think a lot of us maybe don't like to acknowledge and are a little bit fearful of. But I think even if disability isn't something that personally affects you or personally affects your family or something like that. There is just something very basic about trying to think about limitations and the connection between limitations and well-being and the connections between having a body that's, you know, bodies are gross sometimes. It doesn't matter like what your body's like. Bodies are gross. Sometimes they do weird things. Sometimes they don't do what you want them to. What's the connection between that and well-being? How do we think about well-being? How do we think about what's common sense for well-being? I think it's just like, as well, anybody who's interested in social kind. Disability is kind of interesting as a social kind. And I think it has some similarities to other social kinds like gender and race and sexuality, but also some significant differences. And so I, I think those questions are interesting. Why now? I think, you know, I don't, I really don't know. I hazard some guesses. But, uh, you know, I think there's an increasing sense within philosophy that maybe these questions of social kinds and social experiences are are worth taking seriously and worth investigating. Hopefully, maybe an increasing understanding that a priori reflection on some of these things has a tendency to lead us astray, doesn't produce knowledge. I think one of the things you often see when disability gets talked about in, say, just like standard moral philosophy is people forget that you can't have disability without a disabled person. Disability is attached to people. You can't just talk about disability in the abstract and theorize it about it in the abstract and use your a priori intuitions. That you might be getting it wrong. We have substantial empirical evidence that non-disabled people tend to get it wrong. So I think maybe there's an increasing sense that you know we do need to take more seriously the reports of people's lived experiences. Hopefully, there's also an increasing awareness that philosophy has more to learn from the rest of the humanities than we might have been open to. But yeah, I mean, certainly for me, as somebody who loves disability studies, like in the abstract, but my my heart is with analytic philosophy. That's the discipline that I was trained in. That's what I love. That's how my brain works. So this book is kind of, you know, my love letter to analytic philosophy. <laughs> you know, I, I think that the kind of views that I'm interested in are often defended in a methodology that's not the methodology of the discipline I love. So part of what I wanted to do is just say, look, actually, these kind of views can be given arguments for in the style and in the tradition that we as analytic philosophers are familiar with. So I hear you are into comic books and video games. That that made me very happy when I heard about that. So what would you say is the must-read comic book series right now? And what would you say is the must-play video game? 
Oh, right. Okay, so for me, right now, the must-read comic book series is Lazarus by Greg Rucka. <laughs> okay. I just think I think it's the most amazing comic I've read in a long time. It's fantastic. So um, is, is this a storyline that, that got you? Yes! How's it's, the it's, art? It's an incredible, incredible sort of post-apocalyptic world. The art's also very good. If you're a big fan, though, of art, Monstrous by Marjorie Liu is just the most stunningly beautiful comic that I have read in ages so i also really highly recommend that one it's just every page is beyond beautiful video game you know lately i've been really taken by this series of video games produced by the studio telltale games okay um, which is it's basically they're experimenting with this idea of interactive storytelling so there's not that much in terms of gameplay but it's an ongoing evolving story and you have to sort of do gameplay and make choices in the gameplay and in choices in the dialogue to evolve the story and i just i find it i find it so gripping and i find it fascinating for how like how much more invested you are and how differently invested you are in how the story plays out when you're actively involved i i've loved everything i have played by telltale games what is your favorite thing to do outside my favorite thing in the world to do outside is go wandering around with my dog. We're in Virginia, things are pretty here, and my dog always wants to be outside, and I just, like, she traipses around and I follow her. Hopefully with some pretty scenery around, but really, I just like to be outside with my dog. I'm thinking of getting a dog soon. I'm still on the fence about it. I'm scared to make that commitment. Uh-huh. Convince me. How much time do you have? Thank <laughs> <laughs> like- you're gonna you're you're gonna regret this you're gonna get like nothing but emails of like pictures of puppies and pictures of my dog for the next month i think i think dogs are just about the best thing in the world but i think dogs are a really great thing for people but especially people who are inclined to be philosophers to have i mean you know what we're like right we tend to get so caught up in our heads and we have a really hard time switching off and think way out into like projecting like well what ifs and what am I going to do and what about five years down the road when this thing happens and how am I going to plan for you know and we're just we're hyper analytical it's why we do what we do and I think the like the really magical transformative thing about dogs is that they are so completely in the moment they live 100% in the moment and they take so much joy in being in the moment I think sharing your life with a creature that's like that, Hmm. it really just snaps you back to the present. It's hard to be just totally obsessed and in your head and, you know, when you just are with this creature that it's just like, you know, come on, let's focus on now. I want to smell this thing and I want to play with this toy and look at this beautiful day. Let's go outside. And, you know, you can leave a room and you can come back in five seconds later and your dog's like, oh my God, you're back. (laughs) This is the best thing. Have you seen the, uh, I guess it's a cartoon of sorts where a dog and his companion is sitting on a a park bench and the human is, I guess, fantasizing about what he's going to do in the future or what he's going to have for lunch or whatever. So you see like the little thought bubble and the dog, the thought bubble is the exact image that you're seeing. (laughs) So the dog is just thinking about the moment. Right. Yep. And the human being is thinking about the future. So, yes, I, I, I'm convinced. I'm convinced of that. Yeah, I think there's just there's just something really special about them. I think the, the bond that you can have with them is it's just unlike any other relationship. And it's 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 really special. Elizabeth, this conversation has been a delight. 
thank you so much oh, well thank you so much I, I really enjoyed talking with you and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast I'm such a big fan of it so <laughs> I'm kind of like I'm fangirling a little on the inside but <laughs> no problem for more access to the unmute podcast subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co there you can get more information about our guests participate in giveaways as well as learn more about people books and concepts mentioned in today's episode until next time remember that your silence will not protect you listen think speak the world will be different as a result